This episode is brought to you by the EVSM Group. It's almost 20 years now since the book Learning to See was published and Valley Stream Maps established as central to lean deployment. What has changed rapidly, however, is the supporting EVSM toolset that captures and analyzes the initial wall maps, making it easy to do what-if studies and prioritize improvements. Receive a free ebook and see the state of the art at www.evsm.com slash 2020. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 283 of the podcast. It is May 24th, 2017. And joining me today is Jim Lancaster. He's the CEO of the company Landtech, a manufacturer that is the leader in stretch wrap technology and innovation, as well as case handling equipment. Jim is also author of the new book published by the Lean Enterprise Institute titled The Work of Management, A Daily Path to Sustainable Improvement. You can read chapter one of the book via PDF. I've linked to that. You can find links to the book and other information about it by going to leanblog.org slash 283. There's also a link to a recent webinar that Jim presented about the book through LEI. So in today's episode, we talk about the book, Landtech's multi-stage lean journey, and some of his lessons learned along the way. I want to thank LEI for arranging the interview and for the review copy of the book. Thanks for listening. Well, again, we are joined today by Jim Lancaster from Landtech. Thanks for being my guest today. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So can you start off you're kind of introducing yourself and uh, maybe give the audience a quick snapshot uh, about Landtech, the company? Sure, Mark. Uh, my name's Jim Lancaster, and um, I run a company called Landtech, and we are the inventors of rotary stretch wrap, which is what you see at a at the club stores or in the home improvement stores when you see the pallets up in the racks with the film wrapped around them holding the the uh, boxes or bags or drums on the pallet. So we invented that process. Actually, my father invented that process back in the early 70s. And um, we have a very large market share of the equipment that does that. So our customers are, you know, all the beverage and beer and wine companies, all the consumer goods, uh, building products companies that ship on pallets. So um, we have a headquarters in our main manufacturing uh, plant for the stretch equipment in Louisville, Kentucky. We've got, um, oh, just shy of 300,000 square feet here and about 400 people. And we produce uh, on in six sort of, fact we call them factories, really what you would call them are production lines. And then we have another production facility in the Netherlands where we make case erectors, which takes a knockdown box, if you will, erects it, closes the flaps, either tapes or glues it, and then we can also we also make machines that robotically load those tray erectors and some other ancillary conveyor and that sort of thing. So we're producing industrial equipment. We are selling and servicing it all over the world. And in case you're wondering, we make the very best uh, of what we do. So that, that gives you a little bit of a sense. Um, uh, I took over running the company in 1995. I was 28. My father was ready to get out of running the company and get into um, uh, more into product development. So he's still, um, he's working about half time, but he still works on product development and, and I manage and run the organization. So that's kind of the, 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 the short story. Mm-hmm. 
Great. And and I know from reading the book that the facility in the Netherlands, that was an acquisition, that, that product line, that facility. Correct. Right? Correct. It was real small when we uh, when we purchased it. It's, it's, it's kind of like that Razor ad. I, I saw the product at a trade show and it took me three and a half years, literally, to convince the the owner of this little Dutch company to uh, to sell it to me and trust me enough to to do that, and uh, and and so we bought that in two thousand one or so. It was really small, couple people and couple million in revenue, and it's much larger now. I think we've got one hundred and twenty folks over there, and it's growing like crazy. And the original owner actually just retired a couple years ago, but I typically see him when I go over there. He, it's really fun because he's really proud of what's happened to it. Yeah, well, and, and it sounds like the whole land tech story is. Um, you know, something to, to be proud of. My roots originally are in manufacturing and I've had the chance to interview um, other manufacturing company CEOs. And it's just, it's always exciting um, to see uh, a company, um, you know, through lean and other practices being successful here in the U.S. and exporting products around the world. So uh, I'm sure that's something you all are really proud of as well. Yeah, we are proud. It's, it's, it's fun to be able to make something in Louisville, Kentucky and ship it all over the world or in in Holland and the Netherlands, also not known for being the low-cost manufacturing hub of the world, and we ship it you know, all over Asia, all over the world. So, yeah, it is. It's it's something to be proud of. Yeah, and I've I've distracted myself now, picturing uh, local uh, bourbon distilleries wrapping boxes, cases full of bottles, probably using Lantec equipment. <laughs> Absolutely, that they are there. I could I could walk in and show you. <laughs> That sounds like a great Gemba visit. We can That's right. For the majority of beer, um, uh, all the fun stuff is wrapped on our equipment. I tell people 80% of what you, what you buy at the grocery store comes across a Lantec <laughs> wrapper on the way to the shelf. So it's cool. Well, great. Um, so before we talk about your book, The Work of Management, you know, I'm curious to hear a little bit more or to hear about the story of how uh, Lantec came to be featured in the book Lean Thinking, which was published you know, about 20 years ago at this point, Jim Womack and Dan Jones, of course. Um, how, how did that come about and what happened after the book was released? Well, the short story is we were in pretty big trouble in uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. We lost, we, Lantec, lost a, uh, a patent case on a core piece of technology around uh, stretch wrappers. It was a real travesty of justice, really. But in any case, uh, it became clear after that to my dad, who was running the company at the time, that we had to do something differently. We were enjoying quite large uh, royalty payments on uh, on technology, and uh, we promised to deliver our customers a machine. It's just that, that we weren't real sure which month it would be in that they would get it. Um, we weren't all that profitable and, and had a fairly large debt load that we had accumulated um, in trying to grow the business. And so... In 1990 or so, um, right after this happened, my father ended up having to let go our operations director because we just couldn't get it under control. And uh, I would call it luck. He found a gentleman uh, who was working for Danaher and who decided to move to Louisville and come um, help us with our operations. And this fellow's sort of prerequisite for coming here was to get to put us on a lean journey and to get involved with um, uh, a consulting firm called TBM and another one called Shinjitsu. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my dad, in sort of desperation, said, absolutely. So they they uh, they all sort of descended upon us in, the, in my, it was probably 91 or so. Uh, my, my dates not may not be perfect. Mm -hmm. And we started doing Kaizen events, and the impact was just 
incredible. And and my father is just a very high energy, um, go get them, roll up your sleeves kind of guy. And so he was very personally engaged in that. And we we essentially converted all of our pr products and production lines in the matter of, of uh, about a year and a half. And then we went to work on the, um, the office components because we could build a machine faster than we can enter an order pretty soon after we started the process. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and it had just an enormous effect on us. We, we freed up something like 60 or 70 people, and, we, and, and so we redeployed them to product development and sales, which is where I was at the time. And we, we, we utilized that extra capacity, if you will, in product development and sales to grow the business, and we doubled the business in, in the matter of the next couple of years. Wow. Um, so lean is what facilitated that process. And um, I, the TBM folks or Shinzuzitsu folks um, were connected in some manner with Jim Womack and Dan Jones. And so they came in and looked at us and said, wow, these guys are one of the early adopters in the U.S. of this. And mm -hmm. it was our sort of before and after was probably as dramatic as you've ever seen, partly because we were so bad. Um, before we started, I mean, our pictures of our batch processes before, I mean, it's we still, our factory is still not as crowded as it was back in the early 90s and we're, I don't know, maybe four or five times as big in terms of throughput. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, just a, a very dramatic story. And and uh, my father is a, is quite the character, so fun to write about. So it was, yeah. it, th that's sort of how it worked. Yeah, and then, you know, in, in your book, The Work of Management, you talk a little bit about what happened then in the years after the release of the book. You had a lot of people coming to tour the factory for one and... Uh, what what else happened in terms of the business and that lean journey? Well, you have to picture me. So I'm this I'm this um, traditionally educated business guy. I've been in New York City in the finance world. Remember, this is during the time frame of the dot com mm -hmm. uh, explosion, and I had a lot of friends that were sort of in that world. And so I know this sounds like a really uh, spoiled brat thing to say, but I was kind of like I'm sitting here in this manufacturing business. We're growing it you know, 10 or 12% a year, and we're making uh, low single-digit profitability percentages, I'm kind of embarrassed compared to what some of my friends are doing. And I'm trying to juice this thing. And the um, uh, it was apparent to me, I'd gotten very involved personally by this time in the Kaizans, especially the, uh, the office ones and the system ones and the accounting ones and finance ones. And it was very apparent to me that we were starting to do uh, these Kaizen events in areas we had done them before, and the and the solutions or improvements looked eerily the same as the report outs from a couple of years before. And so, even though our results continued to improve because we we had made these big investments in technology and sales that continued to grow, it was very clear to me by the late '90s that the actual impact on the business from the from the lean activities we were doing had really stalled. And those of, those that are listening would probably understand this. There's times when you're making improvements and they don't quite hit the bottom line yet, but you, you just know they're right and they're absolutely making an improvement because you can see the waste just come out of a system or a process. And there's other times when maybe the results are looking better, but you look at what you're doing and go, you're not really making any difference. Mm. And that's really what I saw in the late 90s. So I rolled out a whole new strategy, and it was our sort of, uh, I say tongue-in-cheek now, our take-over-the-world strategy. We were going to um, take what we had learned in Lean here in Louisville and go find some other businesses uh, that had the same basic customer base, hopefully on the same sort of production line, if you will, at our customers 
because we have a very strong brand, hopefully overseas, so we could get the benefit of a, of a better global footprint and this um, breadth of product. And then we were going to take Lean in there and do exactly there what we did here, and we were going to take off like crazy. Mm-hmm. So we uh, we did that. We uh, uh, we acquired the, the business in the Netherlands. We acquired another business in Florida that um, uh, – we, we basically closed down in Florida, moved back to Louisville, redesigned all the products, and, and then relaunched it. And um, those businesses in our global expansion, which was actually broader than just these acquisitions, we also made some pretty big investments in Asia. Um, they worked fairly well. I mean, we did the lean conversions, and they worked. We did the new products, and they worked. We did the channel expansions in Asia, and they worked. The problem was, at the end of the year, all that growth that we got from that was completely offset by deterioration back at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, not only did I have to succumb to my dad looking over his glasses and kind of saying, <laughs> I told you so, mm-hmm. um, but but also, um, I mean, I was working my tail off, flying all over the world, and I had young kids, and I just wasn't seeing the impact. And so I just got really frustrated with, uh, with uh, what was going on. And we weren't in trouble. It's just not, not for as hard as we were working. It should have been a whole lot better. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Well, and you know, and I, I think it's good to hear about you know the focus on, uh, you know, the results of of the business. You know, I was, you know, um, you know, a lot of times people talk about you know early on, uh, you know, we want to implement lean. And so, well, who on some level, who cares? You should be trying to improve the results of your factory, your business, your hospital, that that's what matters. And I, and I hear, you know, and you telling the story of your dad getting started with this, what you're talking about here, it seems like the focus, I think rightfully so was on running the business and looking for things that work as opposed to being, you know, if you will, a lean zealot, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's part of the benefit we have. I mean, this is, you know, a family owned business. And at the end of the day, you know, are we getting the results or not? Mm -hmm. And, I think that that I think in a very large company or one where you're not as is um, sort of connected to that, it's easy to lose lose your way on that. But I, I tell people all the time as I'm teaching them lean stuff here. I mean, we're going to focus on what's our biggest business issue, what's our biggest mm-hmm. problem, our biggest opportunity, and then let's figure out what tools we got in the toolbox to go to work on that. Because if we aren't actually impacting what's most important, then nobody's really going to learn anything. This looks like a hobby. And right. and uh, it's very easy to have lean as a hobby. I see that very frequently, for example, on 5S projects where mm-hmm. somebody decides they need to have 5S and it needs to look better, but it's not yeah. connected to a real business issue where 5S is a very strategic and critical tool for some business issues. But if, if that's not my problem now and I got another problem and I solved the problem that's not the, the constraint, then I just wasted my time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that that's a really great point. And, you know, you can go back to you know, even Taiichi Ono's book where he says, you know, you have to start from need and what are your most pressing needs? And And you have uh, to do that, Mark, you have to do that not only because uh, that impacts results, but remember, at least in my view, a lot of this lean thing is really about people development. Mm -hmm. Because if we're not creating believers, if you will, then we can't sustain the improvement and we certainly can't get any scale. And if we're not working on the most important things we got in the business, then everybody already knows this is just a freaking hobby. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 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 a critical element for people to also learn uh, and also learn what's important to the business. Mm-hmm. 
Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because, you know, that's something, you know, you hear in the language from Toyota, developing people at the core of uh, their, their improvement work and, and their management approach. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on what you do, how you encourage that within Lantech? Well, it's very systemic. So um, let me say a couple things about learning. First of all, um, this is a this lean thing, whether it's the management system or it's really fundamentally understanding um, uh, the way we help operators be successful, whether that's a salesperson or somebody in finance or, or somebody in customer service or, or in manufacturing. There's a belief change that has to happen in my view, for a manager to be really helpful to operators. And that belief change comes from experiences. So very rarely does anybody get a belief change from being told something, from reading something, from being, it, it comes from experiences. And how you know whether someone's got a belief change or not is when they're under stress, what tool do they pick up? And they're going to pick up what they believe in. Mm. So mm -hmm. um, from the way I learned this was uh, this place was not doing what it needed to do and in order for me to get what I wanted, which is with the support from the guy I wanted support from who was the best in the world that I knew of to help me, I had to go back to the shop floor and learn some things. And when I did that, and I didn't just go down there for a day, I was down there for months actually in the work, um, it just it, it became so clear to me the dynamic that goes on in everyone's work, and most people know this, but but there are thousands of variables that operate in, a, in an environment on any given moment or any given day, and I don't care whether you're a, a, a receptionist at a hospital or one of our salespeople are working on a production line, there's all these variables, and it's so easy when you get a little distant from it to forget that and to assume that when something's going bad, you got a motivational issue or a people problem. When 99.99% of the time, you got a variable that's moved uh, of some sort, and uh, we haven't been able to support whoever the person is in being able to to deal with that variable. I'm hope I'm not being too obtuse, mm -hmm. but um, it's absolutely critical that leaders or managers understand that because then their the first tool they pick up is the go see, go understand, so I can help tool, as opposed to the pick up the tool of quote motivation which is you clearly haven't tried hard enough or or to try to solve it from a distance when all you're going to do is demotivate them and send them in the wrong direction distract them from real problem solving because if you're not there you're almost for certain going to be given the wrong advice yeah so i don't know if that helps but mm -hmm. we believe that training and teaching is at the core of running these workshops on on um, making improvements so when the difference in the 90s was we ran Kaizen events to really convert an area from batch to one-piece flow or to take waste out of a business process. Today we run workshops on, for example, standardized work or on problem solving or on pull. And the primary purpose of those workshops is, is, is for the people in the workshop to learn. Mm. The byproduct is an improved process in the area. And the results are not, com are not overly different in terms of the change in the environment. But the focus of the preparation and how you think about team makeup and how you think about what you do in the report outs and all that changes when your primary focus is development. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way I get enough improvement. You know, now we got, I don't know, 500 and some odd people. I can't have a, a KPO office with two or three people and have a meaningful impact on the business. I've got to have all our team leaders understanding these principles and able to implement yeah. them and train their folks. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah, it, it does. And, and let's sort of build on that and, um, you know, talk about one of the key 
messages in the book uh, being your daily management system. Um, obviously, you know, people should go and read the book and they'll get the whole story. But um, how would you describe uh, the Landtech daily management system and uh, that approach in a nutshell or at least in summary form? Well, let me uh, let me start by saying what the problem is that it fixes. So what's the business problem that the management system fixes? Because if you don't have this business problem or don't see this issue, then the management system is just so much wall, wallpaper and wasted time. Right. Good point. The problem I saw very clearly was that we had deterioration. Anything we changed, anything we improved would only last a certain amount of time and then it would deteriorate. And I have a great example. We have uh, co-ops in here, and uh, these co-ops are studying lean in their in their program at the local college. And so they did a um, they did a 5S project over the last three weeks, and they did a report out yesterday. And they're reporting out, and they're showing pictures of the before mess, and, and, and this is in a maintenance area, and then how they've got everything all organized inside yellow lines, and everything's in the right spot. And I'm sitting there looking at it, saying it's great, but in terms of maintaining that over time. If we don't have a proactive process that's happening daily, that will go back to its original state very quickly. Mm. And so what I realized was that, that for us to be able to be com accumulate competitive advantage, which means accumulate benefit over our competitors, we had to plug the hole in the bottom of the bucket, if you will, of all this improvement we were doing. Yeah. And so... That was the underlying business problem is we were deteriorating all over the place. And it that deterioration is such a sucker punch because it tries to draw you into blaming people for, quote, not having the intestinal fortitude or accountability system in place to to hold it. And that's just the furthest thing from the truth. But that's the the, uh, the even bigger danger of it. So anyway, yeah. the, the, the management system is about that. So let me uh, let me say it as succinctly as I can what the management system is and then, then maybe we can come back and talk about it a, uh, in, a, in a little more general way. Um, structurally, it's a cascading, cross-functional, standardized set of steps that connects all the value-added work in the business to all the support resources every single day. And that's a mouthful and it's a big deal. Let me go to the yeah. second part. Interpersonally, it's a system that provides the support quickly to an operator or a manager needed to maintain and improve their area. And um, this really allows individuals to learn more. It allows them to lower their frustration levels, and it allows them to feel more valued because obviously we value the work they do. People feel valued based on the fact that we value their work, mm -hmm. largely. And if we don't care to fix the problems they're having, then we must not value their work. Mm. And so... This whole system has a dramatic impact on morale and, and, and sort of energy level as well from an interpersonal standpoint. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to structurally just a second and, and say what I just said a little more simply. This is a process to catch deterioration at the very detailed level very rapidly and then to be able to quickly get the right either level or um, skill applied to the problem. And if you can do that, on a very quickly, I mean, if it's if it's a fairly narrow problem where the resources are within the sphere of influence of the tight end management team, it, it happens literally minute to minute based on andons on the line. Mm -hmm. But if it's something a little more complicated that takes cross-functional, for example, priority trade-offs, we literally can do that on a daily basis. And most businesses, 
if they do it at all, they do it in quarterly or annual batches. And generally, the people that have to make those trade-offs don't don't understand the work. So it's it's our ability to make literally tens, if not hundreds, of decisions on a daily basis to get the right resource focused on the right problem has made a huge impact on our business. And who who is making those decisions about reactive needs or? you know, uh, deeper uh, reactions, including root cause analysis, Who, who's making those calls? Okay, so there's there's multiple kinds of issues you have. Let me take the most common one, which is uh, in most businesses, we set up functional areas with objectives. So engineering has an objective to reduce the uh, number of engineering hours per job or the number of engineering change notices or to reduce cost of electrical components or something like that, right? And production is is trying to meet their production uh, productivity goals, so they don't want downtime. So when I have a problem in the production line, and it needs an electrical engineer to help support their problem, well, you bring down the the engineering manager, and the engineering manager is talking to the production manager, and the engineering manager may not consciously think this, but subconsciously they're going, "Oh crap, I got to spend my time supporting this guy. That means I'm not going to meet my objectives that are critical for my quarterly bonus." And so we, we as a business set these managers up sort of at, at odds to each other unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so um, what, um, what the system does is we have a very specific set of instructions for who decides what. So if an, uh, if an uh, issue only um, – utilizes the resources within your functional area as a team leader or a manager, then it's your call. Mm -hmm. You still make it visible. So if coaching is required or whatever, folks can do that. But you make the call. But also, if it crosses functional lines, you go, the the person who, who is the next person up in line that has responsibility for both functional or maybe three functional areas that are involved makes the call. So it's very clear. In most businesses, what happens is, and I used to do this, I'd tell the operations guy, well, go talk to the engineering guy and you guys work it out. Hmm. If, you, if you guys can't work it out, obviously you're not a very good manager. <laughs> so I set them up to fight. And then they set this whole fight up and they get in the, all the politics start. And then finally I'll come in rolling my eyes later and have to break up a fight and make a decision. Hmm. Now we're standing there at the board. I know when it's my decision and I don't set them up and I make the decision right there. Or if I need data, I'll get the data. Mm-hmm. If it's if it just if it's for example between engineering and and manufacturing, our ops director makes that call right there. And even if I'm standing there, I'm supporting and I'm watching the process. I may give some input of some something I may know, but I don't make the call. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So and, it's very specific. Yeah, and and doing all of that requires uh, a different. A different role for leaders at all levels, um, how they're allocating their time, where they are. How would you describe some of that shift in, let's say, frontline leadership, middle management, and you know your role as CEO? How how have those leadership styles or approaches shifted over time? The the big thing is we spend a whole lot less time in meetings, hmm. so um, we don't have staff meetings. That we don't have all the cross-functional meetings to make decisions on things. We just we just don't have that many meetings. And the reason we don't is all this cross-functional work is happening every single morning in 10-minute bits in each functional area as we walk around. And so what this does is, and it's not just a, 
it's not a walk around staff meeting. Um, it's different because it, the problems are coming up from the operations, whether that's what, what, whether that's accounting or wherever it is. And you've got the cross-functional folks standing there. We're clear on who makes what decision. We have a process for making decisions, which is, you know, getting everybody's input on what they know about the facts, and then going around again and getting their input given the overall objectives of the business of what they think we ought to do given that. And then the person who makes a decision makes the call and asks for support. Mm -hmm. And that process uh, is just very effective. In terms of time, the difference is that time is specific. And when we first started, it sounded like it was all added. So, you know, my mornings, um, my mornings now on Mondays and Fridays are consumed with the management system. And then Tuesday afternoon is our is our management system around all the improvement or project work. And so, but the rest of the week, I can dip in if I want to and not dip in if I don't want to. And, and I can be working on improvement projects. And typically, I've got individual things I'm working on, individual projects where my individual expertise I can help lift. For example, we've got a big insourcing project going on, and I'm helping layout processes for how we're going to do that, negotiate purchasing capital equipment, all that kind of stuff. Processes for that. <laughs> so it yeah. sounds like we have leader standard work um, processes for, for business functions like this, not just out on the shop floor. Absolutely. I mean, we have a process for decision making. If you've got a capital request, for example, there's a, there's a process you could go through that looks a lot like an A3. You fill it out and you go to we're clear on where the decisions get made, and you can get a decision really fast. But if you show up with, hey, I really want an overhead crane, and when you haven't gone through the <laughs> systemic thinking, mm -hmm. then I, we just don't waste that time of having to have that meeting and ask seven more questions, then go back and get those seven questions, come back, ask three more questions. We've, we've systematized that because most, for example, spending decisions, you know, really the questions are almost always the same. So that's good to make a, a repeatable process out of that. And what I hear you saying is if somebody says, hey, I want to buy a crane, you might step back and say, wait a minute, are you jumping to a solution? Sort of like you asked earlier about um, um, you know, the management system. Uh, what, what problem are we trying to solve? What problem does having a crane solve? And you know, I've seen you know, back in, in my day in factories, somebody would say, we need a new crane to more safely, more effectively move this uh, inventory, this whip around. And somebody could step back and challenge and say, well, why do we have the whip? Let's eliminate the need for the crane instead of coming up with a better, safer, bigger crane. Right. That's exactly right, Mark. The, the cool thing is I just say, well, why don't you, why don't you run through that decision-making matrix and bring it to me? That's all I got to say. Mm -hmm. And by the way, guess what's on that decision-making matrix? What's the business problem or issue? Yeah. What's going on around it? What you know, it, it asks those questions, which allows them to feel like they're bringing me a fully thought-out thing when they bring it to me. Now I'm going, man, great job. You mm -hmm. thought this out well. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm. As opposed to in the old days, I was correcting them and redirecting them and they felt like oh man he doesn't want to buy the crane he's not supporting me yeah now I'm, I'm and i'll ask this question from the standpoint of let's say a listener because there are a lot of people out there that um are skeptical about process or standardized work and so um i'll ask this question it's not me challenging on this but somebody might be wondering okay so you talk about you know process and structure, uh, does that slow down decision-making too much or interfere with 
the agility of the business, or if so, is there a trade-off for making fewer bad decisions? How, how would you how would you frame that? Well, I I mean, our structure makes us tremendously faster mm. at making decisions, not slower. Mm. And let me tell you why. Yep. The reason decisions uh, ten years ago here were slow is nobody knew what to bring in order to get the right answer, and they didn't understand how we were thinking about it. Because things, the way decisions were made were not visual or visible, and the purpose behind them were not visible. So it was a mystery. And that's what took so long. And the process then was an approval process of all these people need to say yes. In this case, it's clear the one place that needs to say yes, and it's clear what you need to have prepared to get a yes. So, you, I mean, I don't have that many no's anymore because people know what it takes to <laughs> To say yes, so they do that, and then it works. I mean, I, I do have to say no sometimes only because magnitude gets out of whack sometimes. You know, I, I only have so much capital that I'm going to wow. apply on a quarterly basis. Sure. But, for example, or or investments in new folks, I've, I've got some sort of metrics I run by in terms of the amount of investment that I'll make in terms of our, our staying in balance with our growth. So those kinds of things uh, I balance, but the... Um, we're dramatically, I mean, we make, I mean, we're not that huge a business, but we make $100,000, $200,000 decisions literally standing there at a board 10, in 10, 15 minutes. Hmm. Because you don't need to contemplate, I mean, you know we have everything we need. Yeah. And, and that's the critical slowdown in decisions is either you don't know who makes the decision, which is what the case was here and in many businesses, or you don't have the data or information you need to make the decision. Those are the two key things that slow down decisions, at least they did here. Well, one, one other thing I want to touch on before we wrap up, one thing I really appreciated about the book is that sometimes corporate success story books are written, you know, with the hindsight lens of, you know, here are all the amazing things we did in this, this sequence. Um, in, in the book, you share a lot of reflections about lessons learned and um, uh, things, you know, maybe you, you wish you had done differently, but you learned from and progressed. You know, that's one theme of I'm going to make a quick plug for. Uh, a book that I've edited uh, called Practicing Lean, which is full of different people's stories about similar lessons learned in, in their lean journey. And some of your stories reminded me of that. So at one point in the book, you wrote about what you called uh, faux lean thinking that had been allowed to continue for a decade. Um, can, can you elaborate on that, uh, maybe give an example and what some of your lessons lear were learned about uh, moving from, if you will, faux lean to something better? Well, probably the biggest place I see, well, I see it in a couple different areas, but one of the biggest places I see what I, this is, I just coined the term faux lean, mm -hmm. is in inventory management. And and that's because uh, less inventory is a good thing from a financial perspective. So everybody assumes the reason we're reducing inventory is because there's this big financial benefit of reducing inventory. And to go off subject just for a second, the main reason you reduce inventory in a lean environment is not because it's inventory is expensive. It's because inventory creates a fog around your system and mm -hmm. material is what is, is your is your sort of visual on what's happening in your process. And by getting rid of more and more material, you can see better and better and better what's going on in your process and get rid of waste. Yeah. So that's the that's a kind of a misnomer. But anyway, we had this get rid of inventory thing and we'd gone from, I don't know, one turn a year of inventory to 14 or 15 or 16 turns of inventory. But anyway, part of the way we had done that is told our suppliers that they needed to deliver 
two or three times a week for a JIT sort of delivery system. We didn't mean to say we want you to deliver two or three times a week and increase your prices. But what what happened was we just transferred the inventory out of our plant back mm. to a distributor's warehouse, so it just went invisible on us. And the, the reason that happened is we were not clear with our uh, supply chain folks why we were asking for less inventory and why we were asking for JIT delivery. We just said we want less inventory. Mm. Yeah. And they got us and they had rules. We won't take this much inventory. We won't do this. And so, you know, the reason it's not that the, uh, you know, the supply chain folks thought we were stupid too. But until <laughs> I understood what they were doing and why, I went, whoa, 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 time out. No, we, if they're buying in truckload quantity and just sticking in their warehouse, no, I'd rather buy it in truckload quantity and put it in my warehouse so at least the ugly is right here and I can see it, yeah. and then we go to work on it. And um, so that happens there. That also, I mentioned it earlier, but that happens big time in 5S. People don't understand why they're doing 5S, yeah. and they want to look like they're doing lean, <laughs> or they put lots of metrics up on the wall, mm -hmm. and they do that to look like they're lean, but it's not really solving a business uh, problem and therefore it's not going to stick and it looks like a hobby. Yeah, yeah, and th there's a lot of that. The, you know, the pushing uh, inventory to another company somewhere else in the extended value stream. Um, I, I used to work at I used to work for Dell Computer back in 1999 and 2000, and a lot of times people labeled Dell as a lean company. I'm like, well, they. They weren't really for a lot of reasons. They had really low inventory. They had really high inventory turns. But there was weeks and weeks worth of inventory sitting in uh, a shared supplier warehouse just down the road. And that right. same supply chain risk and slowness was there, even if one piece of the uh, supply chain was being optimized, you know, sometimes at the expense of um, overall cost or overall flow through the supply chain. So that's a, you know, it's a common problem, whether people um, are intentionally framing that as lean or just something they think is uh, a good idea, but it's, it's, it's perhaps sub-optimizing or not ideal. Right. right. Well, especially in, in the world we've lived in for the last 10 years where the cost of money is fairly low, you know, you got to be really careful what, what you're doing and why you're doing it or you're, or you're taking your business backwards. Mm -hmm in terms of inventory. So, you know, in our business, we're not a huge company, so we can't impact a, a good chunk of our supply chain. We cannot impact. I mean, we're not going to impact Siemens. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> what, But a lot of our uh, supply chain that's making uh, was making fabricated parts, if we can't make changes in their processes, then we've just started doing it ourselves. And yeah. we've, we've, we've done a lot of insourcing because we couldn't, we couldn't impact our supply chain and so we just started doing it ourselves, and it's amazing, you know, at what what should be lower volumes in the supply chain that should cost you more. The savings for us has been unbelievable. Yeah. Not because of that we're. It's just because we can we can put the lean processes in place, and the in the in the vendor base was not willing to do it, or not capable of yeah. doing it, or whatever. Yeah. Well, and there's a difference between squeezing suppliers, which I think Dell tended to do, because other than Intel and Microsoft, Dell had the weight. Yeah. Uh, to right. push the waste on others, and and that often caused a lot of problems. So I think you know in the book you make it really clear to your example of the frequent just in time deliveries, um, low inventory versus lowest total cost may be two different decisions, yep. and I, and I think that's framed uh, very well in the book and as you explained it here. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and, and inventory is a bad thing also because obviously you can't fix something when it's broken. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter where the inventory is. You, you, you sort of own it no matter where it is in the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you don't own it, you're sometimes liable for buying it. Uh, That's exactly. It's just the same thing. Right, same thing. One other thing I want to follow up on, you know, within your story, um, uh, caught my ear when you said, well, you know, the supply chain people thought we were stupid. And was there was, was it a case where the culture was still at a point where people were afraid to speak up and they're more willing today to say, hey, that maybe that's stupid. We should rethink it. Have you have you seen a shift in terms of people? What was it a case where they they didn't speak up about that? Well, they spoke up and got told to shut up and do what <laughs> do what they and not really. Yeah, I don't mean my I, culture has never I, our sure. culture has never been that clear. <laughs> but what they said was they asked their direct manager and the direct manager said, we need to reduce inventory. Yeah. And the problem was that our management system didn't have the connection. So you have to understand, I, I'm standing there in the procurement department. And I mean, we're not that huge. Our procurement department's got maybe eight people in it. And I'm standing in front of them every Monday morning for five or six minutes. And we go through and we understand whether they're red or green on their stuff. But at the end of the meeting, it's always, is there anything else going on? Anything else you need help on? And sometimes it's, I, you know, I know you've said no price increases, but so-and-so is increasing the price, and I've tried this and this and this. you, you have any ideas? And I'll either write there or circle back and we'll work on a negotiation strategy. Or they'll say something like, hey, you know, I know we've been doing it this way for a long time, but do we really need to buy it this way? We're coming through this one distributor. Could we buy it direct or whatever? And I've, I've been able to torpedo a lot of those sort of urban legends of why we do things <laughs> just because I'm there. And by being there, you build up a trust and they realize you're just a guy like anybody else and you're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, I've made enough good decisions and bad decisions and apologize for them that they, they're starting to feel safer about bringing that stuff up. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask, you know, I, I've, um, I've had a chance to visit Louisville before with uh, one of the hospitals there. This was going back, gosh, to like 2009, where they were exploring a little bit with lean. And there's been a lot of mergers and, and shifts within the Kentucky yeah. healthcare market. But I'm just curious, have, have you had any opportunity to meet any healthcare executives in your community um, to try to share what you've done? You know, John Toussaint, uh, of course, in Wisconsin, got a lot of uh, coaching and mentoring from various manufacturing CEOs. Have you had any opportunities like that? You know, I, I've run into a lot of healthcare folks at uh, the, you know, like the Lean Enterprise uh, Institute's conferences and stuff like that, which I've been to a few times, but not locally. Um, I, I really haven't. Um, but I, I have enough personal experience with the healthcare environment with a family like the rest of us. Boy, is there opportunity there. And, mm -hmm. and what I'll say is work is work. You know, it, and, and I think that the work of intaking or cleaning a, an operating room or or pre-op processes or whatever, they you just sitting there in a hospital watching that stuff happen is is really not any different than the kind of work that we manage. The challenge I see in healthcare is that they've got some cultural issues between doctors and nurses and administrators that culturally are different than manufacturing. And uh, that, that poses a bit of a, a bit of an issue, but yeah. I uh, I got this great analogy for you. You know what a tra you know you know what an orange traffic cone looks like. Mm -hmm. So an orange traffic cone is 
I depended on the size, somewhere between five pounds and 25 pounds, and it's made out of plastic. And yet, uh, the 300 million people in the United States, if you put out a traffic cone in front of a parking spot, will 99.9% of the time not park in that spot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you're in a 3,000-pound car. You might have tattoos down your arm and a buzz haircut and be former military, and you're not going to move the cone and park in that spot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the reason I make this analogy is that some of these cultural elements between doctors and nurses and administrators are like a traffic cone. <laughs> they look absolutely impenetrable. They look huge, and they've always been there. They weigh 25 pounds, <laughs> they're made out of plastic, and they're sitting in front of a parking spot. And, um, you know... I, the reason I say that with such vigor is I see that in my own organization with culture around standardization of work in engineering or standardization of work in sales or places where, no, you don't understand this is a profession and uh, no, you can't standardize this, you can't segment it and break the work into pieces. You know, all of these things we quote can't do and, and my standard response to people like that is when you standardize it, then all your problem solving skills get, work, get to work on new problems as opposed to all your problem-solving skills, solving the same problem day after day. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that speech works all the time, but, uh, but yeah. that combined with, well, you know, heat and pressure works. Well, and I, I mean, I think that's, that's a, I haven't heard an analogy like that before. So I think it, it kind of raises the point of, you know, perceived impenetrable barriers versus things that we can actually work on. And I think a lot of those those standing um, cultural challenges or, or relationships uh, can can be worked on. If if there's a bad starting point with a lot of without a lot of trust, um, somebody needs to start building that trust and working with people. I I hear hospital executives often complain uh, about a lack of physician engagement, and I, I usually try to politely ask, "What are you doing to engage them?" Right, and uh, some right. You know, they they can often do more. Right. Well, engagement has to do with valuable work. And if, you, if you're giving people busy work to do, they're not going to be engaged. They want to go home having saved someone's lives, not filled out paperwork or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. the uh, yeah, it's just a um, it's a uh, it's a constant challenge. And you're right. We get mm -hmm. we as managers and leaders have to take ownership and we have to step into the individual work. We can't just stand back with the ideas. We have to actually roll up our sleeves and get in there. Yeah. Um, that's the only way we really get credibility and also where we really know we're, we're, we're doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, and, and like you say, you know, uh, to some extent, work is work. I think it's especially true thinking back to the title of your book as we wrap up here. The work of management is the work of management um, as, as people have embraced these ideas of lean daily management and continuous improvement and, and different leader mindsets. Um, you know, to some extent, you find people are people. So these same things tend to work across different industries. So I, I would encourage people, um, you know, even if you, you, you don't work in manufacturing, don't think of Jim's book as, quote unquote, a manufacturing book. Um, I, I think there's broader uh, appeal. Um, the, the book is available. It's published by the Lean Enterprise Institute. You can find it at lean.org. It's available through uh, Amazon. The, uh, the title, again, is The Work of Management, A Daily Path to Sustainable Improvement. Um, and again, the author has been uh, Jim Lancaster. Um, Jim, uh, thank you so much for being a guest today. Is, is there any other kind of final, I always feel like I'm putting people on the spot, but any final thought um, that you'd like to leave the listeners with? 
I have two, if okay. I may. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> so the first is that management is work like any other work. And so if you're listening to this and you're an improvement engineer uh, or somebody that, that's sort of been working on improvement in the work processes of management or an office, the same techniques work for management. What are the, what's the value add? How do we get rid of the waste? How do we get more of the time on the value add of what management does, which is primarily supporting operators or, or helping operators mm -hmm. actually improve the work? That's my first point. My second point is that if you happen to make something uh, and you happen to package it, please buy Lantech. <laughs> and, and what is the company's website? It's just Lantech.com? Yep, www.lantech.com. And everything great about stretch wrapping and case wrapping <laughs> is right there. All right. Well, I would definitely encourage people to do that. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for taking time to um, share some of your reflections, your lessons learned, and uh, to talk to us today about the book. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.